0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to worship you. We ask you to guide us as we open the word and the study, and we thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 19, starting at verse 1. The burden of Israel, behold, the Lord rides upon a swift cloud and shall come unto Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of the Egypt shall be, melt in the midst of it, and I shall set the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they shall fight every one against his brother and every one against his neighbor, city against neighbor and kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Israel, Egypt shall fall in the midst thereof, and I will destroy the council thereof, and they shall seek to to their to the idols and to their charmers and to them that have familiar spirits and to wizards. And the Egyptians will I dry, give over to the hand of the cruel Lord. A fierce king shall rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. The waters shall fail from the sea, and the rivers shall be wasted and dried up. They shall turn the rivers far away, and the brooks of defense shall be emptied and dried up. The reeds and flags shall wither. The paper reeds shall, by the brooks, by the mouth of the brooks, and everything sown in the brooks shall wither and be drawn, driven away and uh, no more the fishers also shall mourn and they and all that they that cast angle and, and into the brooks shall lament and they shall spread nets upon the waters shall languish moreover they sh- they that work in the flax and they that weave networks shall be confounded and they shall be broken in in the purpose thereof all that make sluices and ponds for for fish okay so we see here that God is giving a prophecy against Egypt and again remember every time we see the word burden it's prophecy or oracle uh, a statement of God a, a, a declaration of God and this one is against Egypt and it says behold the Lord rides upon the swift cloud and shall come into Egypt and this idea of riding on a swift cloud is, is fast movement uh, coming in power And he's going to move against Egypt, and says, "And the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence." And this is a refrain back to the Exodus ten plagues, but more. Okay, but he's reminding them, "This is what happened." And remember, when we were studying in in Samuel, when we were looking in the First Samuel class, we had the uh, Philistines remembering what had happened to Egypt some 450 years later when they're getting ready to fight Israel and and they bring the Ark of the Covenant out and they go, remember Egypt. (laughs) Remember what God did to Egypt. And here God's again bringing out the idea, remember what happened to Egypt. And it's amazing that sometimes the lost world remembers the things that God does better than those that are his people. Uh, The Israelites during that battle with the Philistines didn't seem to remember that it was God who was their deliverance They were thinking it was the Ark of the Covenant was going to give them their victory and We see this over and over Israel today does not recognize God very as a nation and Yet God's the one that keeps them protects them Our country is rejecting God and moving away from God and, and leaving our roots and yet God says I will move I will move. And it says, the idols of Egypt shall be moved in his presence and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. And this is something we see oftentimes when God moves against the world, you'll see them just melt. And, you know, we think of this person just so strong. Look how strong they are. Look how strong. But without God, the trials that we go through tend to crush us. And even if we're with God and not looking at Him and trying to do things in our own way, the trials of life will crush us and It's funny you know when, with people I work with, you know these guys you know sometimes are torn apart by the littlest things that go on in their life, and I'm looking at them going, "Why are you bot-? you know what's going on why why is this you know and they'll, and they'll look at me and they'll you know because I'm usually upbeat and happy and telling them you know god God's got everything under control, and this is something. When God moves, and he, or he lets things happen in, more, in, in a better way to state it, people get crushed. They melt. Uh, the world turns to alcohol. They turn to their drugs. They turn to you know, whatever their idol is. They turn to them to uh, move away from God. And their, their strength in their heart just melts. They just cannot handle what's going, going their way. And then he says, I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they shall fight everyone his brother and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. And this is something that we see all the time. When things get tough, people usually turn on each other. Family turns on each other, nation turns on on nations, you know, uh, And this is why Jesus said they will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another because that is something that is unusual in the world. Because even in families where you should have love, a lot of families don't have a lot of love in them. It is a supernatural God thing to have true unconditional love that says I'm going to love this person in spite of anything else that's going on. And we look at this and see, because we see it all the time. our country right now has got politicians trying to divide up the country against each other, which is the world's way of doing things. If you keep everybody separated and at each other's throats, you can't have the unity that is part of it. The United States was strong because we brought everybody together. It was the United States, in spite of all the problems everybody had with each other, they united around God. And here he says, I'm going to move against Egypt, and Egypt is going to attack each other. And a lot of times, and I'm not sure if it's true in here, this has got a lot that goes about Egypt, but Egypt is oftentimes a picture of the world in the Bible. Uh, When the Israelites were in the Exodus and they were wandering in the wilderness, they always wanted to go back to Egypt, which was a picture of going back to the old lifestyle. You know, and they were remembering things, and they, they forgot that they were enslaved. All they could remember is when we lived in Egypt, we had, you know, we had onions and leeks and whatever else. You know, they would talk about melons. You know, and you know we had a grand time in Egypt. We yeah, we were slaves, but <laughs> we kind of forgot about that part. But you know, we as Christians do the same thing so often. We'll get going, you know, and go. Uh, we'll, wow, you know, back when I was lost, before I was a Christian, I used to do these things. <laughs> and our memories tend to want to play this game with us to forget the bad we wouldn't have become a christian if we hadn't thought our life was totally messed up and ruined but we go you know back when the day when i was doing you know whatever it was i did <laughs> You know, and we remember the fun parts of it. You know, we don't remember, you know, we remember going out and drinking and thinking we were having a good time. We forget the day after when we couldn't operate because our, our heads were swollen and, you know, we couldn't remember what it was that we did that was so fun in the first place. Uh, you know, and I used to have fun with people, my employees that would come in drunk, you know, hungover. <laughs> you know, oh, you need, you, you need it quiet in here? Let's make some noise, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't very nice to them, <laughs> but you know, this whole idea of the world will attack each other and we as Christians have to be careful that we're living in the love of God because we tend many churches tend to attack each other as well uh, if God's love is not preeminent in people's lives there's a lot of viciousness and attacking of people and clicks and and all of that and we want to be careful of this and he says God moves in and the world strikes back the world does not like feeling God's presence and you'll see it if you're representing God in, the, in, in somebody's world, they'll kind of push back at you. They don't like to feel God. God brings conviction. And this is something we see. As a Christian bringing God into a situation, you do not have to say anything around people sometimes. And they feel the presence of God and get, get convicted and, and feel a little guilty. You know, and I've had people ask me to leave because you know just because I'm there. I haven't even said, you know, what you're doing is wrong. Or I haven't even looked like what they're doing is wrong. But if I'm there, I bring God with me, and they're going, now would you please go? <laughs> you know, we can't have any fun with you here. I'm going, okay, bye. <laughs> you know, Probably didn't want to be there anyway. But you know, when God steps in, the world pretty much falls apart because God is so opposite of the world so opposite of the flesh when God comes into our life there's a battle that's put into place you know our spirit and our desire may be to let God rule but our soul and our flesh want to rebel against it and it takes God and saying God I just want you to crucify crucify my flesh get it get it under control and eventually we get to the place where I'd rather be with Christians You know, I would just as soon be with Christians than anybody else, family or anybody else, as long as I'm with Christian and we're talking about God and we're lifting up God, I have more fun in those days than anything else that I do because I want to see God lifted up. And, you know, I'm past this brother against brother, flesh against flesh pretty much. The flesh still comes up every once in a while, though. It's like, eh, don't want to do it. Don't, don't, Don't want to be part of it. And, you know, and it comes down to, Usually when that happens, I haven't been reading my Bible as often as I should or praying as hard as I should, spending time with God. And the flesh loves it when we we don't do those things because it'll say, oh, I'm I'm getting the victory. And we need to be careful of that. Verse 3 says, The spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof, and I will destroy the council. They shall seek to their idols and to their charmers and to them that have familiar spirits and wizards. So it says... The Egyptian people will fail and their spirit will fail. Their, their life, their, you know, their, their strength will fail or be emptied is a better word, will be emptied. Have you ever been in a place where your life just seems emptied? You know, when you're not filling it with God and nothing seems to be going right, everything's going wrong and God's not there. It's very easy to get there and it says their spirit is emptied. It says he will destroy their counsel. I've been there where God has destroyed my counsel. I keep wanting to do things my way, and God says, no, we're not going to do it your way. We're not going to let that happen. You know, and it's awful when God turns his face against us and says, okay, you're not going to be successful in doing things your way. And you keep trying to do it your way. And sometimes we fight for a long time. And I've shared with you, I had a six-year battle with God over this one in my past. Six years of trying to do things my way and have everything fail. Everything failed. And having my spirit really just started getting worn down. And finally, just said, God, I give up. And then instantly, everything changed. It's amazing how fast God will turn your life around when you give up and say, God, I give up. I want to do it your way. And just watch him. And it's not just saying the words, just like salvation, it's not just saying the words, God, come into my heart or God, I give up. It is literally meaning I give up or God, come into my life. And when you do that, God says, okay, you're now where I want you to be. I can step in and take care of the, take care of the show. And it says they're, they will seek their idols, you know, their false gods, whatever those gods are going to be. And you know, it's amazing to me that much of the world still worships idols. And it's scary. You know, in, their, in our enlightened days and everything, you know, we think that these idols are not out there. And yet, the really strange thing is they're starting to come back. Even in America, we're seeing idols coming into America. Right now, they've got the Arch of the, Baal of, of the Temple of Baal on display or recreation of it in Washington, D.C. You now, with all the artwork that goes with it, and the, you guys have already, we've already talked, the arch of Baal, Baal is not <laughs> a nice thing. And yet people are going, let's look at this thing. Revelation tells us they're gonna worship the image of the beast, okay? Which means they have to have it set up that people are used to worshiping images before that happens. And we're seeing it happen in greater and greater numbers. People are turning to Buddha and worshiping the Buddha. They're, they're turning to Krishna and worshiping the, the war god of Krishna. You know, we're seeing all of these things going on in a greater and greater depth. And we're going, what's happening? You know, and as I've said so many times, we're, we're saying that we're in a post-Christian world. But what we're really becoming is a pre-Christian world all over again. And it's nothing new. It's going backwards. And people are going, look how far we're pushing ourselves forward. We're leaving this God of the the Christians alone, and we're going to have lots of gods is what they're ending up doing. And, you know, it's a very sad place to be. And it says the Egyptians will seek their idols. They will seek their charmers, their medians, their occultists. And have you noticed how much occultism is really kicking into gear? We have places in Kingman that do occult. There are palm readers, and spiritualists, and mediums. And you would think in a small town like Kingdom, you wouldn't see that. In bigger towns, you have them everywhere. We got one in Korah. But this is what's happening. Our world is going backwards, back into what we used to think is gone. And it says the occultists are out there, those that have familiar spirits. Those are the ones that have basically demons in them or communicate with demons. And then wizards, those who are uh, doing magic through the, through the demonic and trickery. And so he says, they're going to do all these things. They're going, to, they're going to pursue after everything that's not God, basically, is what he's saying. I'm moving in, my presence is there, and they're going to seek other things to try to be victorious and we see this and this is the sad thing is the world gets darker and darker the christian light shines brighter and yet the world hates the light okay evil does not like being around light it will run from the light now, if you have lots of room they do their stuff in the evening uh-huh oh yeah always always because that's when the power is around for the dark it, it hidden in the dark and I was, was going to say, it's like if you have mice or roaches around your house. You turn on a light and they scatter. Yes. <laughs> you know, they will scatter. And that's what evil does. When the light comes in, they scatter. And this is why the church is so important to give out the light. But We have a, we have a spiritual battle going on in this town. We've had it for a long time. God it was starting to make some progress in changing this town. And then we've got this whole new wave coming in of occultism and, but you know what? God is still more powerful than what's coming in. So we pray, we lift up God, we continue to lift him up out there, you know, cause God is more powerful. He really will be victorious and we're just gonna pray for revival. But, uh, you know, this is what he says. When, when the world faces God, they seek after evil. And I'm going to take this beyond just Egypt. You know, this is literally the world does this. God comes in even after a revival. God moves, a great revival happens, and then the people get dull and let their lights dwindle, and the evil comes right back. The world tends to evil. Why? Because we are all born sinners. You know, we are born sinners. We're not, we don't become sinners. We are born sinners and we do what is natural when we sin. When we come to Christ, he makes us a new creation. And then what's natural for the new creation is to follow God. But the unfortunate thing is he doesn't wipe out all the, the sinner in us. So there's a battle going on constantly in our, in our, in our life. Are we following God? and the light where we let in the flesh and sin dwell. And pretty much it's what gets fed it's going to be stronger. When we're in God's word, we're studying, we're we're with his people, we're focused on God, the flesh starts dwindling away. And each one of us knows what that's like when we're following God and we're looking at him the the flesh just starts falling away and it's like it gets easier and easier to be obedient to God. And then we stop we stop praying, we stop going to church, we stop reading our Bible, and it gets easier and easier to sin. And this is why it is so critical for us to be in one accord, being, being amongst ourselves. In Hebrew it says, forsake not the assembling of yourself together and so much more as you see the day approaching. So as it gets darker and darker in the world, the church needs to come together more and more. And this is one of the reasons I want to do as many Bible studies as we can get people to come out for because we need to come together and be encouraged with one another and raise up the light. Because the sad thing is so many churches are making less and less meetings with themselves. There's a lot of churches. The only time they meet in the week is Sunday morning. They don't meet Sunday night. They don't meet in any time in the midweek. Now there's a number of churches that are doing doing good, but it is becoming a standard thing now not to have Bible study. And then if they do have a Bible study, it's well, what do you think this means? What do you think this means? What do you you know, getting everybody's opinion on what, what the Bible means instead of this is what God says. And we need to be careful, I mean everybody likes those meetings. Well, you know, we all we what did you learn? Well I learned that five different people have different opinions on that verse. Okay, well what's God's opinion on that verse? what does the verse mean and when we studied when we did a how to study the bible we talked about this each verse has one meaning it may have lots of applications and usually will have many applications but there's one meaning to the verse and we need to be able to look number 1 what's the meaning and then how do we apply it these verses that we're talking about today I'm given application as we go along written against egypt But I'm also trying to show how does it apply to our lives, because that's what's most important to us. How does it apply? Okay. I may know all the stories in the Bible, and I know many people over the years that know all the stories in the Bible. They could, you know, you say we're going to this, and they'll tell you all about what's going on, but they never know God in the process, and that's what's important—that we know God, because knowledge is not going to get us through, but knowing God will, and knowing what He wants will get us through the trials. Our memory verse for this month is, you know, there hath no temptation overtaken us, but such it is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer to you, be tempted above that which you are able to withstand, but will, with a temptation, provide a way of escape. All right? Nothing new, nothing unusual, you know. And we want to be careful because God's truth is there's nothing new. And we need to keep that in mind. When, whenever we look at something and it looks new, if you really were to try to study it, you'd find out it's a recycling of the old because Satan does not create anything. He just keeps recycling the same things that have been going on forever. And all these false religions have the same basis, basis in it. Do, do, try to do enough good to get to heaven or there's no heaven or hell anyway or all people are going to hell. It's one of three things that he tries to lie to people about. Okay, don't worry about it, everybody goes to heaven. Nope. God says only the perfect go to heaven. Well, you know, there is no heaven or hell. This is all there is. Well, that's a pretty sad way to live. And if I believe that, I'd be, I'd be somebody to eat, drink, and be married, get as much out of life as I possibly can, and I know that doesn't work. Because I've met so many people who have tried that. And they go, well, it doesn't work. You're never happy and satisfied. And then the idea of earning my way to heaven, you know, that doesn't work either because you, there's no religion that says earn your way to heaven that will tell you how, much you how much good you have to do to earn your way to heaven. You're always in, have I done enough? You know, ask a Mormon, have they, have they done enough to earn heaven? Ask a Jehovah's Witness, have you done enough to, to make, make heaven? Ask, ask a, a Muslim, have you done enough good to earn heaven? And they'll always tell you, I have no idea. I hope when I die I've, I've done enough good. The thing I like about Christianity is I can tell you I've never done enough good to get to heaven, but I've accepted Jesus and he did enough good and he gave me his goodness. And I know that I'm going to heaven because of him. Not because of what I've done or do or might do, but because of him, the completed, finished work of Christ. And this is where we're at with this. And it says these people are going to cons- consult the spirits. They're going to consult the spiritual world, everybody but God. Verse And the Egyptians will, will I give over to the hand of a cruel lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And Egypt did fall at various, at various points. But I also think he's talking about the end times when the world will fall to the Antichrist. And he will be cruel. He's going to seem good for the world at first. He's going to seem like the, the king of peace and... and uh, try to draw everybody together. And then he's going to show his true colors. And it's too late at that time. They're going to be under his, under his reign. But there's a fierceness. And Egypt does fall to various dynasty changes if you've gone through your history of Egypt. They've had many dynasty changes where, they've, where they were one, one king and then a whole brand new king. I believe it was four, four kingdoms that they had before they finally finally ended, if I remember correctly. Uh, but he says, a, a king's going to rule over them, a fierce king. It says, the water shall fail from the sea, the river shall be wasted and dried up, they shall turn the rivers far away, and the brooks of defense shall be emptied and dried, and the reeds and the flags shall wither. The paper reeds by the brooks, by, by the mouth of the brooks, and everything sown in the brooks shall wither and be driven away and be no more. For Egypt, this is a big deal because it's talking about the Nile being dried up. And thus far, the Nile has not dried up. <laughs> so this is definitely still something in the future. But you know, it's kind of a scary thought because that's a pretty mighty river. It's one of the great rivers of our, of our world is the Nile. And God says it's going to dry. And it's going to dry up so bad that all the reeds and everything around it will, will die. And. Again, I believe this is going to be in the, end day, in the end days because God says in the end days that the rivers will be destroyed, the drinking water, if you remember the book of Revelation, that a quarter of the drinking water is gone, a quarter of the seed is destroyed, the, you know, a quarter of the land is destroyed. I mean, we, we talked about this when we are going through the book of Revelation, that in the book of Revelation, if you add up all the people who die, a full 66% of the people at least die. And you think about that. We have, I think it's three or four trillion people in this world right now. And two out of every three will be dead by the, by the plagues. And that's a kind of a scary thought. It's a lot of dead people when God moves against the world. You know, and we want to be very thoughtful. I mean, in this room, that would mean three people were left. At the, end of the, at the end of all the judgment. You know, it's a serious time when God moves against people. And here we see God saying, I want to dry up the River Nile. You know, Nile is the lifeblood of Egypt. Even today, it's the lifeblood of, of Egypt. They run all their, their irrigation from the Nile. They pump water from the Nile. And God says, it's going to be dried up. It's going to be taken out. And, you know, the idea of not having water. You know, water represents, in many cases, the Holy Spirit as well. And he says, I'm going to dry it all up. And when God takes the church, the Holy Spirit is going to be removed in the way that he's ministering now. And it's going to be hard for people. They're not going to have that same living word in them that we have. And that's going to be hard. When they, get, when they become Christians, they're going to have a lot harder time And it says they're going to die. They'll be killed. I'm glad we don't have to die for our our faith. If God puts it in us, you know, he may put us there. And I think we're going to have more and more deaths in the near future as persecution comes. Because persecution has happened all through the Bible. You know, the Jews kept killing all the prophets. It was not a good, you know, we read the prophets and say, well, what a nice job they had. Yeah, most of them died (laughs) at the hands of the Jews. Yeah, and, you know, not nice, nice deaths. So one of a couple of them were, were thrown to wild animals, sewn into skins. You know, Isaiah himself, who we're reading, was put into a log and sawn in half. You know, uh, drawn and quartered for many of them. Then you get into the Christian era where uh, the, the Caesars decide to persecute the Christians and do all kinds of wonderful things. And if you want to know the details, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, but you know the horrible deaths that the Christians have paid, and that the Jewish prophets have paid to serve God. The world does not like the ministry of the word. You know, and we in America think we're being persecuted if people make fun, at, make fun out of, of us. Well, I, I had such a hard time, they, they laughed at me. Oh, well, aren't you, aren't you really persecuted? You know, you're you're not facing death. You're not facing a cross. You're not facing a, a hanging or an electric electrocu- electrocution or being being run through with swords or stoned or you know all the different ways that people have died. You know being crushed under a pile of stones. That was done to some people. You know put a board over them and keep loading rocks onto them until they until they were crushed. Uh, paraded around as a specimen. You know and before they died. You know, it was not nice things that happened to people. And, you know, during the Roman days, you, they did not understand Christianity because they had all kinds of gods. They did not understand the Christians' demand that there was only one God. You know, they go, okay, well, we'll take your God. We'll, we'll add him to Zeus and, and Mercury and, and Diana. Well, we'll just add your God to all the other gods. And they didn't understand that that's not... What God said, you'll have no other gods before me or even with me. And so we see this process of God saying, I am going to be separate and distinct. And we see him bringing a judgment that's going to destroy this nation. And eventually he'll bring in judgment that will destroy, virtually destroy this world. Not everything, a third of the population will make it through the tribulation period. And most of them will have taken the mark of the beast and be sent straight to hell to await the white throne judgment at the end of the tribulation. There'll be a small handful of people that make it through the tribulation. They get to live through the millennial kingdom. And they get to repopulate the earth over a 1,000 years. And they get to live most of the 1,000 years. So they should be able to populate the world pretty good. (laughs) And they do. All right, verse 8. The fishers also shall mourn, and they that cast angle in, into the brook shall lament, and they that spread nets upon the waters shall languish. So it talks about the fishermen, this waters have died away, and this has gone so bad that they can't earn their living. And when God brings judgment, things happen. Now, we see it all through the Old Testament where God steps in, the people repent. And remember, even yesterday we read that people repented and Samuel said, if you repent, God will deliver you. And remember the Philistines were coming to attack them and they were all set to be defeated and then God defeated the Philistines. Thundered on them, Thundered on them and, and killed many of them and then the Israelites chased them out of, out of and subdued them for 20 years. God does this all through the scripture. I used to use that one because we just covered it. But you know, there's all kinds of places where God steps in when Things are happening. God steps in. Goliath, back in the Philistines, come in and challenges Israel, and David steps forward. Defeats Goliath, and the people get brave and chase the, chase them out. And again, God stepping in. Gideon comes in, you know, says, you know, uh, God tells him, okay, you've got way too many people because they're, they're going to think you did it. You know, they only had 30,000 against 120,000, uh, but he says, you've got way too many people. You, you know, he gets it down to You know, a 1,000 goes, oh, you got way too many people. (laughs) You know, gets it down to 300 and go, there we go. Now we've got a number that I can, that it'll be a God-sized thing. We need to always keep in mind, if we're listening to God, if God's on our side, nothing can defeat us. And we can get excited. If God tells us to do something, and you know God's telling you to do something, you will be successful with it because God's on your side. The Christian church started with about 500 people, give or take, you know, when they, when they first started, the 12 disciples and a handful of people that had been following Jesus. In a world that did not accept Jesus, that pretty much didn't even accept one God, and 400 years later, they're impacting the entire Roman Empire, and the millennial la- millennia later, we're pretty much sweeping the world with Christian truth. And now we're coming 2,000 years later and watching the fact that the Christian church is no longer strong and following God and making compromises and we're seeing the world with its old ways flooding back and overtaking Christianity. We are at a crossroads right now for, the, for our days that are really crucial for the church and for Christians. Because if we keep going backwards, we'll end up with another great time of persecution of the Christian church as the world tries to take back its position. And we see, we know what's going to happen. The Bible tells us it's going to happen. This chapter is telling us it's going to happen. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it in our day and age where more and more people are moving away from Christianity, back into the spirits and the gods and the and the witchcraft, and the demonic worship. And you know, the strange thing is, if you watch TV, you're seeing all these shows that are, you know, if you're into any of those kind of supernatural shows, you, the demons are good, uh, or can be good, and the vampires, and the werewolves, and everything can be, be good. Like, I, I don't watch zombie shows, but I'm sure there's some good zombies out there you know, that, you know, in some of these shows. But they're trying to show that evil might be good sometimes. And, you know, this is a sad place to be because it's exactly what the Bible says. At the end days, good will be called evil, evil will be called good, and that's exactly what we're seeing in our day. Evil being called good. And, unfortunately, what God calls good being called evil. You know, in our current generation, there's a lot of young people who are saying that marriage is bad. Possibly because they've seen so many bad marriages, you know, that have all led to divorce, that they'll go, well, I don't care what God says about one man, one wife, you know one woman for, for life. We just it doesn't work, so we're not even going to consider it. And you hear it a lot in the young generation. You see, you're hearing it more in the older <laughs> generation too. But you know, we're seeing everything that God says is the way we're supposed to do things, people say, no, not going to do it. And part of it is the hypocrisy they see amongst the church and Christians. They see, well, it's not working, so why, why try it? Well, it's not working because people aren't really submitted to God in the first place. And when you see life, it's, it's impressive when you see life. You go, I like, that. I like what I'm seeing in that person. They're following God. And they stand out even amongst the lost world because they're, they are counter-cultural. Uh, you know, we as strong Christians, make a light that says people draw to saying wow don't know what that don't know what you crazy people are doing but I'm kinda interested in it and that is what is our hope for revival is people getting on fire for God (laughs) getting on fire for him and living according to God and following God are we gonna be perfect no and you know what I think the world doesn't want us to be perfect in one sense because if we were perfect we'd be beyond what they could obtain to but when they see us living for God and failing and turning back to God and God accepting us and not, and not stopping us, they're going, I might be able to do something like that. <laughs> you know, they're, not, they're not wanting these Christians who say, well, look, you know, come to Christ and you'll be perfect. And you know, there's some Christian people, you know, at least saying they're Christians, you know, that are Pharisees saying, come to and you need to be perfect. You know, it's not attractive to the world because everybody knows they can't live perfect lives. And then these people that say they're perfect and they fail really look bad really look bad because they've messed up. Our job as Christians is to shine a light. and when problems happen, we turn over to God. When we fail, we repent. And that really strikes people. It's it, it impressive to people when we repent and we, and they watch us follow God and not wallow around in the mud for, for, for decades, and you know it's like, okay God, I, I really messed up God and, you might even have to apologize to a non-Christian who sees you fail. You might have to apologize to your kids if you, see, if the, if you fail in front of them. Yeah. But it makes an impression on people. Oh, OK. I don't understand this, but OK. You know, and that's the thing that is good about Christianity. The world will never understand it until you get to know God. The world does not understand the Bible until the Holy Spirit gets in them and all of a sudden the author of the book makes it become real. And people who, and I love it, people get saved and they go, wow, I can understand the Bible now. I couldn't understand it last week. I couldn't understand it last year. Now it makes sense. It's jumping off the page telling me this is how I should live. And it's wonderful. I like watching especially brand new Christians. They are so much fun to watch. Because everything about the Bible, everything about the Christian walk, is new and exciting to them. And I wish some of us that have been around for a lot longer would get some of that excitement back. You know, wow, look at this! And that's why when I read the Bible and, I, and something brand new comes out, I just love to be able to share it with people. It used to drive my family crazy. Yeah, look what I just found. Look, look listen to this. <laughs> you know, and I love, I love when people do that. Some of the And I've shared this so many times, and I know, I know many people don't believe it, but some of the greatest things I've learned from the Bible have come from people that are very new in Christ, and they're sharing what God has shown them in the Bible. Why? Because the Holy Spirit wrote the book. He knows what it means. And this is why, when I said, when we, when we study the Bible, when we read the Bible, we invite the Holy Spirit into our study to tell us what's going on. And... And I shared with you when I was younger, I used to ask the Holy Spirit all the time, what do these verses mean? And he'd tell me. Then when I finally started learning how to use all the tools, I found out that the Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about. Lo and behold, the Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about. The guy that wrote the Bible knew what he was talking about, and he told me the truth. But now I could prove it. Okay, And there is a place where you want to learn to study and be able to prove. It's great to be able to say, this is what God told me. But there is a time when you get into maturity where you want to be able to say, this is what God told me and this is why I know that it's true. And it meets the rest of the scripture. Because if you ever hear something that does not match the rest of scripture, you listen to the wrong spirit. <laughs> okay, Plain and simple. If you come up with something out of the Bible that doesn't match the rest of the Bible, you're listening to the wrong spirit and you've, you've been taught wrong or learned wrong. <laughs> So be very careful. Always make sure it fits in context. And this is why it's wonderful when we start reading the Bible and everything just starts piecing together. This part over here in Genesis matches the part in Leviticus, which matches the part in Nahum, which matches the part in in Romans, which matches the part in, in Revelation. You go, okay, this is what God says. He keeps repeating himself. I know what he's saying. And this is how we get to know doctrine. You know, how many times has God said something? You know, if the only time you can find something in the Bible is one time, it's interesting. don't base your life on, on something that's only mentioned one time and there are certain things in the Bible that are only mentioned one time okay you don't want to build your entire you know theology and your life life working on one one mention in the scripture uh, you know but you find things two, three, four, a hundred times. <laughs> Okay, you, the more you find it, the more you can say, okay, oh, this is what I'm going to place my life on. All right, and because here it is. You know, let me, let me walk you through the Bible. I'm going to show you all the places. And sometimes I've done that in the messages where we walk through several verses, and I don't share all the verses. Otherwise, it would have been, we'd, all we'd have done is read a whole bunch of verses on a topic. But, you know, it's important for us to say, this is what God says. This is where he stands. You know, he talks about being the creator of this, this universe. Very important, especially with the world coming at us with all this garbage about how the world you know, just evolved and just randomly happened. And God says, no, I'm the one that framed it. I'm the one that fit it together all through the scriptures. Not just the book of Genesis, but all through the scriptures. We're told that he framed it. He formed it. He planned it. He holds it together. Yeah. And when I read that verse, it was struck me because I was always wondering, how does an atom hold together in the first place? An atom should not hold together. The electron should collapse into the center and the, and the nucleus should be blowing apart. And yet it holds together at the most minute detail. And the Bible says God holds all things together. Literally. Not just figurative, literally holds the world together. And every atom. Yeah. can you imagine if God just got a momentary lapse of concentration? Oh no, I forgot about the world. <laughs> for, for for a nanosecond, he forgets about the world, and everything just blows to pieces. But his nanosecond part right? <laughs> <laughs> would yeah, be But once he alive. forgot, we wouldn't be around. We wouldn't we wouldn't know that he'd forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> but you know. He holds everything together, and at the end says everything will be destroyed. And I, I really believe he'll just let go of it, and everything will just gone in an instant. And then he'll create a new heaven and new earth to hold together. So, you know, the power of God. The the we go through and we look at God and say, God, what is it? And those of you who have been reading the Bible through each year, you know, I'm hearing the same thing. You know, wow, I'm just amazed how God brings all these things together. And you're you're reading your Bible and you look at the notes and it says, refer to this verse. And, you know, you start looking and, you know, it refers back to the Old Testament. It refers to different places. And you go, wow, it's all tied together. You know, a book written by 40 different people that doesn't contradict itself. You know, I don't know if you know how amazing that is. Okay. I have seen contradictions by the same author in the same book. Okay? Who's supposed to be smart. Worse yet, if he's written two or three books, you will see contradictions within his two or three books or her. And then you get some other experts on the same topic, and you'll get, you'll get contradictions all over the place. The Bible. Forty different author, human authors with no contradictions, written over 1,400 years, over three continents. Yeah. all kinds of different huh? Two different right? Three different languages. Three, three different. So we see all of this and it holds its unity. And it's, you know, it's just an impossibility, humanly impossible, for this to be the case. And yet it is there. That in and of itself is such a miracle that it says, OK, this is God's book. You, know, you read other religious books, and there's contradictions all over their books. And they don't match history. They don't match archaeology. Archaeologists love the Bible. They go to where the Bible says certain things are supposed to go. They start digging, and they find what the Bible says is there. You know, uh, we shared with you for years, they said David never existed. He's the King Arthur of the Israelites. He never existed. He's a conglomeration of kings. And just about 50, 60 years ago, they found the proof that David lived. They found all kinds of stones and, and tablets with his name all over them. Oh, there is a David. There was a David that ruled. And he was a famous, famous leader. It's an amazing thing. If the Bible says it, hold on to it. Because eventually mankind will figure it out. You know, when evolution started pushing in, people started trying to figure out how does how do how do the scientific evolutionists fit into the Bible? They don't. You know, now we're finding plenty of science that contradicts all of the evolution science. And, you know, use that term <laughs> very loosely evolution science. And you know, for years, for almost hundred years, it was hard to find anything against it. And the church did not hold firm overall (laughs) to God's creation story. And they're going, well, they're saying it's a really long time. We've got to figure this out. Do you know, before evolution, the the problem in the church was, why did God take so long to create everything? So there's been problems all along. In in the Middle Ages, they're going, well, God should have just created everything in about six seconds, not... (laughs) You know, they did, seconds was about as small as they, they understood. You know, six seconds, not six days. And could you imagine having to rest every seven seconds? <laughs> i got to stop working. <laughs> you know, but, you know, we just need to take God at his word. And when we take him at his word, the rest of it will fall into place. doesn't mean we can't go on trying to find out where it is. Because what happened to Job when, when he started complaining, God, just let me talk to you, and, and God showed up, and he says, where were you <laughs> when I did? And he went through all kinds of scientific principles. Job is a great book about science when you look at it. It talks about the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle, the, you know, the hydro, hydro, hydrological cycle. He goes through everything in there and says, okay, Job, where, where were you when I did all these things? And it says, Job shut his mouth because he didn't have answers. He wasn't there when God did. And this is the one thing about it. You know, Ken Ham has a statement. You know, When everybody talks about these things that you don't, you know, uh, millions of years, he goes, you need to ask them, were you there? You know, And it's really a good statement. Were you there? I'm going to take the word of the person who was there, God, because it always stands up. And we need to be able to take that stand and say, God said it. I'm going to believe it. That doesn't mean we don't have to go out and try to prove it or figure it out. But, you know, our first stance is God said it. You know, when we get to the end days, God says there's going to be tribulation. He says there's going to be the waters destroyed. He said there's going to be an earthquake that destroys the mountains. that's quite an earthquake. To flatten out the mountains of this world will be quite an earthquake. And yet, scientifically, we can understand how that will work if the, Earth, if the Earth's shifting its axis, a mighty earthquake that would drop the mountains is very feasible. And our axis is tottering even today. It used to be a millennia between it. Then it got to be 100 years. Now we're down to about every 10 years, the, the actual axis shifts by a couple of degrees. Our world is slowing down. <laughs> and going to have a major earthquake because of the axis shifting. And the Bible talks about an earthquake that brings the mountains down. And we can picture that happening in our day. Now, we'll say it's scientific. God's going to say, I told you. <laughs> I told you it was going to happen, and I'm going to make it happen. So we look at this and say, OK, God, you—you you know the very fact that he predicted that it's going to happen, is said, or not even predicted, said that it will, is." something we can hang our hat on and say it's going to happen. And, you know, we look at this and God says, you know, he's going to destroy Egypt, basically. Their their economy, their fishermen. So their fishermen are languishing, no fish. Again, very reminiscent of the 10 plagues when God made the river run blood and all the fish died and and then he killed the cows, and then he killed the, the properties. So we see this judgment upon Egypt, a judgment upon the world that's going, going to come. And again, both literal, and we've talked about this, the prophecies have a literal per, per, uh, fulfillment always, because otherwise the prophet was, was to be killed. You know, if a, kill, if a prophet gave a false prophecy, it was death. But there's also usually a long-term <laughs> fulfillment. And we see Israel, Egypt falling under, the dynasty falling under, but I also think it's going to be the end days because I don't know that the River, River Nile has ever completely <laughs> dried up yet. And yet we have the prediction here that it will, predictions in other places that it will. The Euphrates will be dried up so that the enemy can just march into the, the, end time, the end times battle. Whether they do it by a dam or dry, you know, literally dries up, it doesn't matter to me how it, how it happens, it's going to happen. And we see this whole process, God saying, all of this stuff's gonna happen. And why will we doubt it? You know, when we look at what God has already done, we should just take and say, God, it's gonna happen. The greatest thing that I look at is God's promises in the word tells me that anything in the future is going to be true. The sad thing for many Christians that I see, we say that we believe God's going to take us to heaven. And he's going to take care of us for eternity. And how often do we not trust him for this world? God, I'm I'm going to trust you for my eternity, but I got to take care of everything here. That's a pretty sad place to be in, and yet there are, most Christians do that. God, I can't trust you for the now, but I'll trust you for the future. You know, I have a problem with that mentality. <laughs> and yet most of us have either done it in the past or are doing it in the, in the now. Where we're, God, I, I really think you can take care of me for all eternity. You'll take me to heaven and you'll take care of me, but you know, I right here in this world, God, I'm not so sure about I've got to do what I can do and God says nothing you can do is going to be good enough anyway. Trust me. And the amazing thing is the more you learn to trust God, the more you see him at work. And I love it. You you start giving God tithes and offerings and you go, God, I'm just going to give you my tithe. Or you might even start with, let me give you an offering. (laughs) God, just let me give you an offering and start. And then God says, well, I want the tithe. I want a full offering. I want to see this. And we move forward and see where he's going going to take us. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you. Lord, we ask that you go before us and help us to minister in in the ways that you want us to. Lord, help, help teach us to learn to trust you more than wherever we're at, Lord, because we can always go deeper and and trust you more. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.